You got me? October 31st. Do you like the costume? <laughs> Actually, uh, as you heard, the pastor has the day off. and uh, Well, he's got some work to do because he's got to listen to me and that might be more painful. Uh, I had a plan. My first plan was for Greg to take up all the time and, and that didn't work. But, but I have another plan, a backup plan if it doesn't work. And, and I was talking to my good friend Rolf. You got me, right? And I told him, I said, look, i got about 10 minutes of material, and then I'm done. i got nothing. And he said, don't worry. Give me the signal, and I'll come up and dance. So, so that's the, the second plan. So we'll see how that goes. But, uh, so my opening premise is how you imagine the world determines how you show up in it. How you imagine the world determines how you show up in it. Okay, that's all I got right there. Ralph, uh, no, no, what do I mean by that? So last week we were upstairs and Nathan was teaching Sunday school. He's a very funny guy and he said, I'm Nathan. I don't know if he remembers this. I'm Nathan and this is my world. And then he jokingly said that Sarah, his wife, would say, what's it like to live in your world? And so in this conversation, there's this idea of an imagined world that Nathan lives in. That sounds scary, right? Nathan's world, that sounds a little scary. But, uh, but in reality, we're kind of all like that. And that we have an opinion about how the world works, and then we show up in that world accordingly, right? And that's what we're talking about today. Now, when I, when I say how we imagine the world, and that's how we show up, and it doesn't work for my wife. She's a very literal thinker. When I say imagine the world, she thinks of uh, maybe it's our imaginary friend or something like that. It's all pretend. Uh, so for her, we would say, and for more literal thinkers, we would say how you think about the world determines how you show up in. And so that's kind of what we will use. And... And for those of you that I'm going to lose along the way, let me give you the punchline for the end. So at the end is, we want to see the world through God's eyes. And when we do, it's good for us and good for those around us and good for the watching world. We want to see the world through God's eyes and live accordingly. And so that's kind of what we're we're talking about here today. So I want to start with a story from the Old Testament. When I say story, I, just, I don't mean it's any less scripture than anything else. When I, there are different types of uh, literature in the Bible. There's poetry. The pastor taught us the Psalms up there this summer. There's, there's letters. There's legal code. And there's narrative or stories. And, and stories are not just a, uh, a chronological sequencing of events. They're actually selected moments that tell us something. And so, for example, uh, uh, Abraham lived for 100 years. Uh, and, and yet, there are eight moments from his life that are shared with us. Why eight? Why not ten? Why not five? But the storyteller is doing something. And so, one of the ways we approach narratives is we ask, what is the storyteller doing? So, in the story of David, First um, uh, Samuel, the storyteller uh, introduces him three times. Why does he introduce him three times? I, I don't know, but maybe it's because he was a complex guy and, and the writer said, hey, I'm going to introduce him in three different ways. But, but we're going to look at the first way that he was introduced and we'll look at the third and we'll ignore the second one for right now. But that help us uh, to make sense of, of my opening premise, which is, by the way, my first point too. But, uh, but so in the story of David, uh, doesn't actually, his introduction doesn't actually start with him. It, it starts with Saul. So let's see. Uh, Saul was the first king of Israel, and when the Bible introduces characters in stories, they often don't care about physical description. Oftentimes when they introduce these people, they care about more their actions or their their motives. And so you might hear in the New Testament someone say, 
And she said in her heart, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, something like that, so we learn about the motives. But, but every once in a while, we'll have physical description. It's really important when we get these physical descriptions, right? And so this is one of them. We'll, we'll see why in a minute, but let's first see what it is. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now, we'll see why this is important when we get to the first introduction of David, but listen to what the storyteller is telling us. This guy looks like a leader. I mean, he's, he's a model, right? I mean, he's, he's a handsome guy, and he's compelling, and, and he's a foot taller than everybody else. He's, he's, this guy, is, he looks like a leader. He looks like a king. He's got the look. He's got executive hair. He looks like he belongs in the corner office. This is the guy. And we'll see why that's important when we go over to, to look at the life of David. And so David is introduced. Samuel the prophet is told, okay, we're going to anoint a new king. So uh, go down to, uh, to Bethlehem, and I want you to talk to Jesse down there. And when you get down there, I'll tell you who it is. And so, uh, so the prophet Samuel is going to go down to the, uh, Bethlehem, the city of David, right? So he goes down there, and when he shows up there, the, all the elders are a little bit worked up. You know, when the prophet shows up, it's not always a good thing. There's a little bit of drama there. I can just imagine he probably could have had some fun looking him in the eyes and go, ha! You know, kind of, you know, he didn't do that, I'm sure. So he said, no, no, relax, you guys, chill. Uh, I just want to talk to uh, Jesse. I got some personal business with him. And he, so he goes to Jesse and he says, okay, line up your sons. One of those is going to be the next king of Israel. So you can just imagine Jesse lines up his sons, oldest to the youngest. And the prophet Samuel looks at the oldest son and he goes, that's the guy. He's got the look. Handsome guy, athletic, he's big and tall and, and handsome. This is the guy. I know what the Lord's doing. This is the guy. And then the storyteller tells us this. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so the storyteller is telling us right here something about David. That what makes him special is on the inside. The clothes don't make the man, right? The appearance don't make the man. Uh, but it's what's on the inside that matters. And so that, that's what he's telling us. And of course, what we're also seeing here is the storyteller is putting Saul and David up alongside of each other, right? So we can see. And that's kind of Saul's purpose in the story. And we'll see that as we go on. Now, the storyteller could have stopped right there and said, okay, you know, David was anointed king and everything, but that didn't happen. Actually, he keeps telling the story, and I think it's a storyteller putting an exclamation point on appearance doesn't matter, right? So, so he goes down through all the sons, gets to the last one, and you remember what happens, right? He gets down to the last one, and he goes, I'm a little bit confused here because uh, I thought the Lord told me go and it was going to be one of Jesse's sons, went through all of them, and, and none of them are a king. So he looks at Jesse and he says, you got another one? I mean, what's, what's going on? And, and it's a storyteller just reminding us that David was even an afterthought in the dad's mind, right? And he goes, well, yeah, I got this, this kid out in the field taking care of the sheep. And, of course, they brought him in and anointed him king. And probably after that, the dad said, okay, bub, back out with the sheep. You know? but, but that's our first introduction to David. We learned something about him that he's special on the inside, right? And now we'll skip the second introduction, go to the third introduction of David, which is the story of David and Goliath. And that's why you've got the, the picture on your thing. This is a great story. We don't have a chance to read it. So let me set it up for you. We've got the, the Israelites on one hill, right? 
and the Philistines on the other hill. Now, the Israelites would also include uh, Saul, who, as you remember, he's an athletic and tall and handsome man. He's taller than everybody else, so keep that in mind. He's the, he's the champion. He's taller than everybody else. That's the Israelites and the Philistines on the other hill. And, uh, and so Jesse tells David, he says, okay, go down to the battlefield and take this assorted cheese down there and meet with the commanders and find out how, how your brothers are doing. Three of his older brothers, not all of them, just three. So, uh, so you wouldn't imagine uh, that David, you know, the shepherd boy, could bring a picnic lunch to a battlefield. It's kind of not what we imagine about battlefields, right? It doesn't. But, uh, but in reality, there's not much happening there. So, so here's how it's going. The Israelites are on one hill and the Philistines are on the other hill. And then they come out and they shout insults at each other every day. And that's kind of what's going on. And, and so he shows up there and, and there's this one guy, this, this ginormous guy, you know the story, this huge man, this huge warrior, and he comes down to the center of the valley. And then he insults Israel and he insults their God. Let me just read this for, for you. Uh, and so this is, this is what it says in uh, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 10. Uh, then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So this guy comes down the center and he says, You send your, your best guy down. Send your tallest guy or your champion guy or the guy who's a leader. You send him down here. And if he beats me, we'll serve you. And if I beat him, uh, then, then you'll serve us. And, and they were terrified. You could just imagine these guys looked down the field and they saw this guy, this huge man and you know, serious beast mode. I am not going down there and fighting that guy. There's no way in the world. And then they turn their eyes to their leader. And their leader goes, yeah, he's really scary. I'm not going down there either, right? And so, so this is the scene where David shows up right here. Now, in case you think that David is just impetuous and jumps out in front of everybody else and grabs the glory, the storyteller tells us that that had been happening for over a month. They were terrified. And so David shows up there and he looks at the situation and this guy comes out and he, makes, he insults Israel, he insults their mothers, he insults their God. And David said, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. This isn't computing. It's, it doesn't work for me. Now, if you guys go, don't go down and fight him, I'm going to go down and fight him. And of course, then they take him to Saul and Saul says, you're willing to go down and fight him? And this young lad says, yeah, I am. And Saul says, okay. Now the storyteller is setting this up so that we see Saul and David side by side. Saul is the biggest, strongest. He's the the champion. He won't go down. He's afraid. And David is not. David's got this inner quality about him. And he sets those two side by side. And then we see, Saul, are you kidding? You're willing to send this lad down there? Does that make any sense at all? And that's kind of what the storyteller is telling us. That's the picture there. And, of course, he tries to soothe his conscience by, he, uh, he gets, hey, do you want to wear my gear? And so you can almost imagine David puts on the gear and it doesn't fit. And, yeah, it's okay. I'm just going to go fight uh, the, the giant. And he goes down there. And if we were to think that maybe David is a young man and that he wins it because he's strong for the battle, uh, listen to what Goliath says when he sees David. Because he says, are you kidding me? You send out a boy... With a, with a slingshot and stick to chase a dog away. I'm not a dog. I'm a warrior. And it made him even angrier. And he said, but I tell you what, I'm going to take care of that guy. I am going to destroy that young man. And so here we have the situation. We've got this giant of a man that everybody's afraid of. And we've got David and they're down there and they're coming together and, and they're about ready to do this. Let me read a description of, uh, 
of Goliath, just his gear. So we already know he's a big guy. Uh, verse 5, he had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale, uh, armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron uh, point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bear went ahead of him. Now, I don't know what all that means, but this guy had the gear. He had all the things humanly possible that you could have. I mean, he had the strength and the height and he had all that stuff. He had all the gear. He had so much gear that he had to have a guy carry his shield. This was the John Flander of the, of the battlefield. He had all the gear, right? And, 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 and everybody knew, everybody there knew this was an unfair fight. Even David did. Because David looked at this guy and he said, Are you kidding me? You're coming at me with that? Did you see who I brought with me? Do you see who's helping me? And of course, the battle was, was short. That's kind of the way the narrative sets up. There's a lot of build-up and then the war is over pretty quick or the battle's over pretty quick. But there are three people in the story that we care about for our purposes. There's the, the Philistines, the Israelites, and David, right? Three people who help us to understand how we imagine the world or how we think about the world determines how we show up in it. Because each of those three thought about the world differently and showed up differently, right? So let's take the, the Philistines. The Philistines didn't believe in God. They didn't believe, at least, that Israel's God was the God of all the universe. So they were unbelievers. Very much, we're, we have unbelievers that we work with, we go to school with, they're, they're in our community. People who don't believe that our God is the God of all the universe. And um, I haven't been an unbeliever since I came to faith when I was 19 years old, so it's been a long time ago, but... I can only imagine in our world to not believe in God has got to be pretty lonely. It's got to be pretty dark. I can only imagine that, uh, you know, but they didn't. And there are people that we know that don't. And, and so that's one. But the Israelites, they believed in God. Okay, so they believed in God except for they kind of believed that, that God was over there and they were over here. He was pretty good for weddings and, and bar mitzvahs and those kinds of things and celebration, but he wasn't much good in my life. I mean, I got some giants here. He's not that interested in helping me. I mean, I got, I got to do this by myself. I've got a whole bunch of issues in life and he's, not, he's over there doing life over there and I'm doing life over here. We've got people in churches all over the world who look at it the same way and, you know, God's doing life over there. He's good for Sundays, but, but not much good helping me in my life every day where I live as an individual. And, and so, and I have to be honest with you, I don't know that uh, practically speaking there's much difference between both the Philistines and the Israelites were alone, weren't they? They were doing it by themselves. Now David, he, uh, he looked at life differently. So for our purposes, he's seeing, God's, uh, through, he's seeing the world through God's eyes. Right? And, and he's imagining a different world. He's imagining a big God in his life, that God is near him and doing life with him, and he steps out in life like that. And we see that a, a, as a result. Right? Which leads me to my first point, which is the premise of the sermon, and it's this. How you think about the world determines how you show up, in it, and we see it from David. And so you might think that this is about the underdog. And I like the underdog part of the story. That's probably one of my favorite parts. But, but the storyteller tells us what this is really about. It's about this. So, so David is saying, oh, got a little ahead of myself here, sorry. So David is saying, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and the whole world will know 
How many times has the Bible said, and they will know, and you will know, and the nations will know, and the whole world will know. And so the whole thing about this battle is so every other person will see the world the way that David does, right? So that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And of course it works because after David defeats them, what happens to the Israelites? They go like this. They go, you're right. There is a God in Israel and he is with us. He is near us. And they went chasing after the Philistines, right? And so, so that was, but that's my next point. So we're going to get there. But how we imagine the world and how we imagine God in our world matters. It's defining. It shapes us. And so A.W. Tozer said this, and, and this is a famous quote. I think I've even heard the pastor quote it from the pulpit here. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's defining. It shapes our identity. It shapes who we are. It shapes how we engage or enter onto the battlefield. So my New Testament verse is this. Uh, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, remember when, when God told Samuel, he goes, okay, uh, man views things this way, but I view things this way. And so that's what, what's happening. And so in this verse, it's saying, don't view things the way that man does. Don't, don't view things like the world does, but view things the way God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I know what you guys are saying. You're saying, David, I get this. This is all about faith. And we see faith in David. That's absolutely right. But I'm going to split the hair a little bit finer if I could. Paul said, faith comes by hearing. And I'm kind of focused on the hearing side of this. What informs our faith? The seeds that become our faith. How we think and imagine the world. So, my call to action is this. Read the Word of God regularly. The key is, is uh, the regularly part of that. I'm not talking about somebody who read the Bible last summer and never has to read it again, or, or, or you become a Bible scholar. Nathan was teaching us again today, and he reminded us of uh, Psalm 1, where human flourishing is addressed. What does human flourishing look like? A person who flourishes is one who delights in the Word of God and interacts with it every day. So it's kind of a, a cheap word to use, but I'm going to say we're really trying to program our minds to view the world through God's eyes. And so that's our call to action. Now the Lord knew that this is really important how, we, uh, uh, how Israel would approach the world and he gave them the word of God and certainly that was important. But that's not all he gave them because he gave them celebrations and festivals and sacrifices and symbols and rhythms in their life that, that made tangible in their mind the invisible God. So you can't see God, right? But they would have these festivals like uh, the uh, um, uh, Passover festival and they still celebrate that in Israel today. It's a, the Seder. And so they sing songs, they read scripture and they have a, a meal that is very symbolic. And usually the tradition is the youngest guy at the table says, why do we do this? And the oldest guy at the table says, because the Lord delivered us. And so, so these kinds of celebrations that they do as a family, as a community, as a nation are the things that help make tangible that invisible God, that he is near us and that we are doing life with him every day, right? So that leads me to my next point. How you think about the world is influenced by others. So we saw this in the life of, of the Israelites. They went charging after. They, David influenced them and, and so it was kind of catching infectious. And so we see, oh, there you go. 
Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. And so the idea here is, is that when we get together and we talk about faith uh, and we encourage one another that we, we bolster how we imagine the world. Two uh, uh, psychologists wrote a book. It's um, probably one of the more famous books in sociology, and I'll read this for you, and then I'll unpack it because they're psychologists. We've got a couple out here in the audience, Tammy and Linda, but, you know, but these guys. So, so let me read it, and then I'll unpack it for you. This is the first sentence of their book. The name of the book is uh, The uh, Social Construction of, of, uh, of Reality. And what, what they're going to say is, is that we kind of, how we imagine the world is kind of shaped by all of us together, by your family and your community and the people you work with as you interact with them. You kind of form this vision of what the world is. Now I'll read it. The basic contentions of the argument of this book are, are implicit in its title and subtitle, namely that the reality that reality is socially constructed. Now, I don't know that we take our clues from them. We take our clues from the Word of God. So we'll see what God says in a minute. But make sure you understand what he's saying. What, what they're saying is, is if you want to see the world through God's eyes, hang out with people who see the world through God's eyes. If you want to see the world through God's eyes, hang out with people who see the world through God's eyes. So you probably know, so it's on your sheet, the next verse. My New Testament verse for this one is the one in Hebrews that encourages us to be together and to, to encourage each other and to lift each other up and help us shape how we view the world, right? And let us consider how we may spur one another on. There it is right there, right? Toward love and good deeds by doing what? Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So we had the pandemic and we did our best. We, we listened to the church on the internet and we watched it on TV and we tried our best. But it's not the same as being here. As hearing uh, conversations, as talking to other people who think the way you think about the world, uh, worshiping together, that's really something special. And God put that in our life to encourage how we imagine the world. And singing, wait a minute, okay, let's rethink that one. Okay, so, so I come in through the, uh, uh, through the, down the aisle here, and I'm a business kind of, let's do, mean potatoes, you know, let's get to the sermon pretty quick here. This stuff that Wendy and those guys do up here, you know, uh, that's all fluffy stuff. We don't need any of that stuff up here. Now, it's amazing because if you look at the history of God's people uh, in the Old Testament and the New, how much singing how much music plays a role uh, in, our, in our lives. So it's, it's kind of a big deal. Um, uh, my, my premise is uh, meet together regularly uh, and, and worship and sing. Watch this. I'm going to give you a quote from an Old Testament scholar. Okay, so this guy's a Bible guy, right? So this is guy would be, you know, scripture, meat and potatoes. Who cares about the singing? Now I'm going to read his quote and I'll have to unpack it. But what he's going to say is he's going to say, Singing, perhaps, is one of the most important things that we do together. That it shapes how we imagine the world. That it helps make tangible the invisible God in our lives every day. So, so I'll read it. This guy's a Bible guy, right? He's an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann. An anthropologist would readily see that we are engaged when we sing hymns in world construction. The articulation of a world that is very different from the one we have regularly in front of us. So when we sing about how great God is, we sing how wonderful God is, how powerful God is, how mighty God is, that's not something we see outside, but it's something we reaffirm together when we sing. 
according to him, this is one of the most powerful things that we can do. Let me tell you how, how powerful it is. So Kathy and I are old rock and rollers, right? And uh, emphasis on old. Uh, uh, so, so we came to faith and we went to a Baptist church. And the Baptist church wasn't so big on rock and roll back then. In fact, the drums, yeah, that's from Satan. I just want to, you know. So, so, uh, so but, but one time, Kathy and I were a little bit rebellious and we got a couple of cassette tapes. One, Michael W. Smith and the other, Stephen Curtis Chapman. I know, we were out on the edge, weren't we? So, so, and we were listening to those as we went to church. And they should have warned us. They should have put a warning on that thing because it was only a couple weeks later and Kathy and I heard our youngest daughter singing those rock and roll songs in her room. Do you know, do you know what we did? We went out and bought some more cassette tapes. That's what we did, yeah. Because I could lecture her on a month of, of Sundays on redemption and salvation and grace and, and atonement. And it was, she would glaze over her eyes like Greg's eyes are glazed over right here. Uh, but here she memorized these things. They're stuck in her brain. And that's the way music and rhythm works. It, look, it works like a mnemonic device to make things stick in our brain and hopefully seep into our hearts. And so... so all of us, we learned the ABCs, for example, with the ABC song, right? I still use it sometimes. Let me give you another illustration. I'm going to need some help from some of the older folks here. Uh, don't leave me hanging. I, I'm going to sing a little jingle here. Apologize about the singing, Wendy. I'm going to sing a little jingle here, and, and I'm going to stop, and I want you to fill in the blank, right? So, so I'm going to sing it, and then you fill in the blank. Hopefully, I won't fill in the blank. That's going to be a problem, right? Okay, so here I go. Older people, you have to fill in the blank, right? Double your pleasure, double your fun with... See? Okay, this jingle has not been on the radio or TV in years. And yet it's stuck in our brain. How important is music that it helps theological concepts and, and, and things we know about God to get stuck in our brain? My, uh, my, my son was in seminary. His wife, uh, Bianca, she was on the worship team. They lived on campus and she was on the worship team. And... Uh, uh, the worship team at a seminary. They did chapel three times a week. She, what's that like? I thought, that's like got to be like a Hillsong concert, right? To be on the worship team at seminary. Well, so I said to Bianca, I said, well, how was that? You know, and she goes, well, the professors are very careful about what we sing. In other words, there's a whole bunch of songs that she wanted to sing and the professor said, no, she was okay with that. She didn't have a problem. But think about what the professors are saying. They're saying, what, if, if it's true that the things we sing stick in our brain and seep into our heart, that, that what we put in that brain is pretty important. So understand what that means for us when we select, when Wendy and company select the songs that we sing. This is important stuff, right? Amanda, when you write songs, the lyrics that get stuck in our brain, this is important stuff. This is big stuff. Chris, when your daughter leads us in worship... Do you realize she's shaping how we view the world? This is responsibility. This is big stuff. Have you had a chat with her about this, by the way? You know, this is big stuff. This worshiping and that we do together helps to shape how we imagine the world, helps to make tangible the invisible God in our lives. Now, there's this one celebration that Israel did that, was, um, that I think is kind of weird, and, uh, and it's called the Feast of Booths. Let me see if I got it here. Okay. So, so the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, here's how it kind of worked. When the Lord delivered the Israelites out of uh, Egypt and he took care of them as they went through the, uh, the wilderness, 
uh, he wanted to remind them uh, of this. So, so there were no farms out there. So he had to take care of all these people as they wandered through the wilderness. And so he set up this celebration that they did, which, by the way, serves as a tangible reminder of the invisible God and his presence in our life. Right. So. So. But I think this is a weird celebration. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know. Oh, see, it's it's that mnemonic device to, so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, we have a friend, in, a Jewish friend in Pittsburgh, and she's older. She's not a religious person. And, uh, and, but I asked her, because she grew up in Israel, I said, well, did you do this? And she said, yes, she did it with her father. Uh, they made a, a shelter, and then they would go out and spend you know, quite a bit of time every, you know, during the week uh, eating things, singing things, and, and reading, and, and being out there in the shelter, experiencing this. I think this is really impractical. And I know that there's some kids out here thinking, build a fort with my dad and go hang out there for a week. Rolf, that's what you're thinking right now, right? I can see. That would be so cool. Ah, yeah, the whole week? Are you kidding me? I mean, couldn't we just watch the video? Couldn't we get the cliff notes or, or, or the pastor tell us about it or something like that? Wouldn't that? So I asked her. I said, well, do you really think it's, you know, and she said, we have to participate with all of our senses so that we remember better. I thought that was fascinating, so that we could remember better. We have a couple of ceremonies that we do in the New Testament church. One of them is the Lord's Supper. The other one is baptism. Uh, now, it's interesting that, that we are so lucky. I mean, this has happened in so many different places around the world in different languages and everything. We do it in, well, at least we have in the past, done it in one of the most beautiful places and all the earth, we do it at the Anderson's house, at least we have, and so uh, you can't see this, but let me tell you, it's good on the TV there, but, but so the pastor's baptizing this young girl, and we might say something like, uh, I don't know who's getting baptized, so it's not for me, and, and we don't come. But this is absolutely for us, because here this person is committing to us, the community, to carry Christianity to the next generation. I'm, I'm going to stand with you guys and I'm going to carry it to the next generation. And someday she's going to stand at a baptism and there's going to be a young girl there. And that young girl is going to be saying, I'm going to carry it for her. So this girl is making a promise to us. You don't get saved by baptism, but, but when you proclaim your faith, you're saying to the people in the community, I'm going to stand with you and carry it forward to the next generation. And not only is that meaningful for us to be there and hear her promise, but it reminds us of the promise we made and our role in this community. And so this is a big deal that we be, do it together as a church. And it has happened in all countries, all languages, all different. Here they are in Panama. That's the Pacific Ocean. They're doing it there. Here's another one. <laughs> Looks good there. This guy really wants to get uh, baptized. I wish I were there to see that. But, but, but. In every single language and culture and geography over the centuries, the church has done this as a community. It's one of our practices that we do so that we will experience it with all of our senses and remember better. There's one other thing that I want to say. Um, you're going to have to forgive me about this one. But, but, uh, but yeah, I'm kind of a people watcher. And there's a young man in the church 
who's always chatting up Anthony back there. And these are protracted conversations. These aren't, you know, little conversations hired. They're actually engaged in talking with each other for a long period of time about hunting or, or trucks or something like that. I don't know what they're talking about. It could be that Anthony's the uncle or something like that. I don't know. But if he's not, how smart is that young man? Did you see Anthony's three daughters? Are they cute or what? Right? Right? This kid, he's, he knows what he's doing. In fact, I think all the young men, ought to, if they were smart, they'd be back there chatting up Anthony. Now, here's the, here's the deal. When those girls show up, which world are they? Are they going to line up all the different ways of imagining the world and say, you know what? There's, there's Nathan's way of imagining the world. That's a bad idea. Uh, there, there's, you know, maybe the, my school's way of imagining the world. There's, uh, there's, you know, the movie's way of uh, imagining the world. My neighbor's way of imagining the world. Are they going to line them all up and then choose? No. They're going to engage the world, the one that Hannah and Anthony model for them, Right? And so what we're talking about is, is, is illustrated perfectly in the family unit. So you can imagine years later they might say something like this. The girls might say, my mom used to love this song. It meant so much to her. We hear Wendy say something like that. Or, or, or my dad used to say this. How many of us can think of something that our parents said that has, have changed how we engage the world? Wouldn't it be great if someday one of those girls is talking to their kids who came home from school and there was some trouble and she said, well, when issues came up in our family with our friends and our neighbors, we all got together as a family in the living room and we prayed. We have a big God who's near to us and involved with us every day. Why don't we do that? And so we see how that, you know, when we say that you know, uh, how we imagine the world is influenced by others is perfectly modeled in the family, and that's what we would hope. My last point is this, and I'm going to blow through this one so we can get to the end because, you know, I, I've already taken up too much time. How you think about the world is never a done deal. So I've avoided the word worldview or the term worldview uh, because that's static. That's something that can be defined. And, and, and I'm talking about how we think about the world, which is adjusted every day that we engage the world. Every conversation we have, it's in motion. It's always being adjusted. So I, I'm going to skip through my proof text and all that and go right to, and you have the verse on your thing, go right to my call to action. Keep doing these practices. Right? So, so, so we said, how you imagine the world, how you think about the world, for my wife, how you think about the world determines how you show up in it. So read the Bible. How you think about the world or how you imagine the world is influenced by others. So hang out with believers. Spend time with them. Sing songs with them and worship. And because this is never a settled matter, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Now let me see if I can land this thing. <laughs> I don't know that I can, I can do We're going to crash and burn for sure. So, 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 but, but give me two minutes and I'll see if I can close this out. So... Um, uh, I have had a friend in Pittsburgh who was a uh, professor of political science. And uh, I was talking to him one time and I said, uh, you know, why don't the politicians just, you know, tell us what they believe, you know, put it on a piece of paper and we could pick whoever we want to and it'd be simple. And he goes, well, well, David, that doesn't, issues don't get people the voting booth. What gets people the voting booth is fear. And we've just been through an election, uh, a round of uh, elections, and you might remember, you could have, uh, maybe heard politicians on all sides and, and their affiliate cable uh, stations uh, uh, talking about you know, very scary things. And, and sometimes, not only do they create anxiety in us, 
but they also create division and, and anger. So you can hear them say something like this, and this is just part of the political, you know, you know, those guys over there, they're going to destroy our country. Those guys over there are going to destroy our economy. Those guys over there are going to destroy the environment. Those guys over there are going to destroy our democracy. Whatever it is, we, we, we heard it all. And if we watch the 24-7 programming there, uh, we get this anxiety and maybe even sometimes anger and even sometimes there, there's, uh, there's division. could even find its way in here. Uh, and God says they want us to imagine that world for their purposes so that we show up and vote. God says, actually, uh, I want you to imagine a different world. Imagine a world where I am king. Imagine a world where you're a kingdom citizen. Imagine a world where I know the end. And it's a world of hope. And it's a world of loving your neighbor. And it's a world of unity. That's the world that I want you to imagine. And that's the world I want you to show up in. Now, what's interesting is we, if we look at this in the beginning, we have David, you know, and, uh, or Saul and David, and they're set side by side. And so Saul helps us see the difference. And then we see right after that, we see Israel, right? Israel and the nations, right? The nations are over here. Israel's over here. So, so we see the nations and Israel here. And God says, don't be like them. Don't be like the nations. You're going to be different. And when people see that, you know, it's going to be good for the watching world. Not only good for you and good for those around you, but good for the watching world. So he puts the nations up against Israel. Watch this, this here. So Deuteronomy, observe them carefully. That's the commands or what, what he's teaching them. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the watching world, right? The nations. Uh, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. It goes on. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near? Our God near us in our lives. To have their gods near to them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. And so, so we have that, you know, they were supposed to be side by side. Here are the nations. And when Israel would imagine a different world and live in a different way, it would show a difference, right? And that was really important to, that they maintain the distinctiveness. I'm going to skip that quote and just try to bring this to a conclusion. The church is no different, right? Uh, Kathy has another friend in Pittsburgh. I can bring up the Pittsburgh friends because you don't know them. Uh, but, but she had another friend in Pittsburgh and she was a little bit upset about how, what things are happening in the world. She was actually hopping mad about it. And she said, what is the church going to do? I think she wanted the church to join her political party, whichever one that was. But, but the church already has its marching orders. Right? We're going to be the church. That's what we're going to do. We're going to imagine a different world, the world that God wants us to imagine, and we're going to show up accordingly. Right? And I'll close with this, because if we do that, we'll satisfy our calling, just like Israel, if they were to be different than the nation, satisfy their calling. If we do that, we'll satisfy our calling, which is this. In the same way, let your light shine before the watching world, that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. So probably haven't heard a lot of sermons about thinking. I'm not sure we did, we did anything decent there, but I'm going to bow our heads and pray. And the good news is, is Wendy and those guys are going to come up and do some really important stuff for us and shape the way we imagine the world. So let's bow our heads and uh, we'll, we'll close this out. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, uh, for everything for your presence in our life. And um, we thank you for this church and a faithful pastor who for 40 years has been teaching the Word of God. And we thank you for everyone in this church and the music people. 
especially the music people. In Jesus' name. That was so fun.